In the world of B2B marketing, complexity is life. Let's sort it out together. Hello, and welcome to Marketing to Complex Industries, presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. Each week, we feature conversations about the latest challenges, strategies, and technologies for B2B marketers. I'm Scott Trobaugh, and today we're talking about the 2020 Marketing to Engineers Conference. It's presented by CFE Media and Technology. They're experts on how to market to engineers and educate their marketing partners about the engineering community's content consumption needs. Based on subscriber research and industry intelligence, they provide real B2B solutions to four key engineer subscriber groups via multimedia platforms. Godfrey has attended CFE Media's Marketing to Engineers conference a number of times and are also a sponsor. Here with me today to talk about CFE Media's Marketing to Engineers 2020 event are Allison Fetterman, Cliff Lewis, and Josh Albert. Allison, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at Godfrey. Sure. Uh, I am the Director of Strategy at Godfrey, so I lead a team of strategists and analysts and researchers, um, and we mine insights and develop strategies for our clients. Um, and I have served on some key accounts as well, um, specializing really in the industrial manufacturing space. So um, communicating and reaching engineers is pretty much what I do all day. Excellent. Cliff? Yeah, so I'm an executive creative director at Godfrey, and basically that means I help set a standard for what we consider great creative work at Godfrey for our B2B clients, and then help supply our teams with support and tools and education and and, and documentation that helps helps us actually live up to those standards. Very good. And Josh, tell us about what you do. Uh, I'm the Vice President of Business Development. I lead our <clears throat> marketing and sales efforts, so all of our um, activities at trade shows, conferences, any of our external speaking, uh, I lead all of those efforts. And then also, uh, I lead our new client engagements. Now, Josh, you've worked with Marketing to Engineers uh, for a couple of years. Uh, we've we've attended some of those events. We've spoken at some of them. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the information and benefit that we glean from that on an annual basis. Sure. Well, as Allison can attest to, you know, a lot of our clients, you know, are marketing to engineers, you know, technical buyers and engineers happen to be, you know, one of the most prevalent audiences that, that we're helping our clients reach uh, on a regular basis. And yes, we've attended now for, I think, four years in a row. We've spoken at, at two of those four uh, conferences. So we, we've been quite involved with CFE Media uh, and we do quite a bit with them uh, through some different partnerships and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great organization for us to be part of. Great. Allison, you've spoken at the event before. Anything to add? Uh, sure. Yeah. Every year, uh, CFA Media conducts um, research uh, for the engineering audience around you know, content and channels and um, what they find valuable um, from, from marketing and, and how um, they uh, interact with distributors and systems integrators. Um, so there's a lot of valuable information uh, every year that I like to um, you know, review and tap into to make sure that you know, what I'm putting together for our clients uh, continues to resonate with their audiences. Yeah, it's really different for people who are not as familiar with the B2B space to find out that there is an event like this one catering to 
such a specific audience with specific types of needs. Now, Cliff, this was your first year actually attending the event, but attending the event was a little different than it would have been in years past. Tell me about what you see uh, from from the the differences this year. Yeah, so so like you said, I haven't actually attended marketing to engineers in previous years, uh, but I I have also um, so I don't have a basis of comparison, com- uh, you know, looking at at past instances of this event. Um, but it was the first time I've attended in in this uh, in this very unusual social distanced. Uh, timeline we're now living in. Uh, this is the first time I've engaged in a professional conference that is exclusively digital. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me because I had a lot of preconceptions of how it might feel to attend a virtual conference. And and cynically, I guess, my one of my starting presuppositions was that it would feel, I would feel less engaged. Um, it wouldn't feel like a momentous experience like many conferences often do when you bring so many people together um, and that I, I just wouldn't feel as involved or invested in the material. Um, and, you know, of course, nothing, nothing can perfectly replace that, that feeling, that energy you get when you have a lot of professionals together who are all like-minded facing similar challenges and you bring them all into the same room and, and present them with some unique solutions. You know, nothing's going to perfectly take the place of that, but engaging with this content and knowing that there were uh, many, many professionals consuming it around the same time. And I'm, I wasn't, this wasn't live. I wasn't probably even watching this content when a lot of other attendees were. Um, but I still had that sense of, of the momentous quality. And I think part of it had to do with being able to see the speaker, see the presenter. They did have, um, they did have a, a video, you know, picture in picture where you could basically see the, you know, the screen share of the slides, but you could also see the presenter speaking. And even just that dimension alone really set it apart from a lot of the pre-recorded webinars and stuff that I've seen and helped produce in the past. So, so I, I was actually really impressed by how much I had that feeling of being a part of something that you so often enjoy when you attend a professional conference. So I, I was, I was impressed and it, it definitely opened my eyes to the possibilities um, that B2B marketers are going to be able to explore, especially in uh, event marketing in the, in the months ahead. Yeah, it's been really fascinating. Uh, we've talked about it here on the podcast in in episodes past, um, how the world is changing, business is changing, communication is is changing because everyone is working from home. All of a sudden, we find ourselves in these in these new uh, these new professional environments with with new and unique sorts of challenges. I think that a couple of weeks of that have helped people get into the right mindset for this kind of presentation. Um, but Josh and Allison, you both have uh, fairly, I think, unique perspectives on this, having not only been to the conference before um, and also seen it this year, but also having spoken before and then uh, prepared to talk this time around. Tell me about the differences there. I mean, from a from a perspective of of speaking at it, um, you know, when you're up on stage, you can, you know, engage with your audience um, a little bit more and you can see their head nods or you can respond to, you know, their body language and, and have a little bit to play off of as you're, you know, giving your, your talk. Um, but when you're in a conference room with the webcam, you kind of lose that um, lose that engagement. So it's a different kind of energy and you kind of have to pull on um, some different delivery. 
Yeah, and one of the core, you know, uh, pillars of this event is, as Allison mentioned earlier, the the annual research that they conduct and then present, and that's that's probably the greatest pool to this event for marketers at these industrial manufacturers. And so, when you think about um, someone presenting research, it's not always the most engaging content because it's really technical. There's lots of stats, there's lots of charts. Um, and, and doing that even in a virtual space, um, you know, I found myself as I was listening, um, having the opportunity to really pause the session and, and make some notes. And in a live event, you can't really do that. You can't tell the speaker to just stop while you take notes. You know, everybody in conferences is always grabbing their their cell phone and trying to take pictures of slides. And I just found that that was a little bit easier to follow along with in the virtual space, um, even though, you know, that 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 sort of engagement really wasn't there, but at least for the research, which again is, is the big part of this, um, it was a little bit easier to digest and kind of work at my own pace. Yeah, that's a great point. I I, re- I relate to that a lot, uh, and and I, ha- I wasn't even conscious of the user behavior on my own part, only in hindsight right now. But but yeah, I was pausing it every time I had a note that I wanted to take down. I would hit pause and and capture that note and it, obviously there's that like there's almost that panicked frenetic feeling when you're when you're there live in person and there's nothing you can do when you hear that that wonderful gem of a of a point or a or verbatim from one of the speakers but you can rewind you can pause so as as much as it you you lose some of the magic uh from from a functional perspective there's actually some benefits i think to engaging with content this way yeah, and that's something that that I think all four of us can really can really share in that understanding. We've we've all spoken at events like this before, um, and there there is a certain energy and there's a certain certain magic to that, and it actually it actually occurs to me that uh, the extroverts in the audience are probably a lot more bummed out by this than the introverts. The introverts are the ones who may not do a lot of networking anyway. And who are really, really there for the content, and they're probably sitting at home in their pajamas, thinking this is the way to do a conference, guys. This is <laughs> this is perfect, you know. Whereas the extroverts are like, I have no business cards. I made two LinkedIn, two LinkedIn connections through this, uh, and those were by happenstance, you know. So, so it really does throw a lot of that out of whack. But I do think that everybody could agree that that ability to pause and rewind and to, to snap a screenshot of a really like salient slides and information. It does give you that excellent control over it. Um, so let's dig a little bit into the content and, uh, and talk about a couple of the um, couple of the sessions uh, that, that you guys found to be especially helpful. Um, well, like I said earlier, it's really, you know, really uh, sunk into some of the um, research uh, around the engineers, and, and you know a lot of the a lot of the information there is consistent across you know year to year, um, you know around the technical information that they value uh, and the channels that they engage in. Um, some some things that are good reminders to me from that were that at the end of the day, a lot of the the sales still does happen with their their rep. So I think there was one stat in there that. Um, 40% of people of engineers have made up their mind about a product before they, you know, reach out to a sales rep. Um, we, you know, we've heard stats over the years before around, you know, like 67% of the buying process is complete or whatever before they reach out to a sales rep. So things, those stats vary. Um, but at the end of the day, they have complex applications, you know, they have unique applications, they have really specific requirements and, you know, searching a website for a spec sheet might get them part of the way, but at some point, 
um, you know, they, they want to talk to somebody about that. Um, and, and I think as marketers, we, you know, are so concerned with our, our channels, right. And our, our own channels and, and our promotion to get them there, um, that we still need to continue to try and focus on what that sales sales, uh, engagement looks like too, and how we arm those sales, uh, teams with, um, you know, the content that the engineers need as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of those numbers are very interesting, and I I wonder if uh, I wonder of those forty percent that have made up their minds before they reach out. I wonder how many of those are are the introverts in the crowd that we were that we were talking about <laughs> a moment ago. Uh, you know, but this is uh, these these audiences. These are folks that that are very analytical. They are very thoughtful, uh, and they they put a lot of stock into into research and into. Um, statistics and understanding and and like to see those patterns ahead of time. And so that really does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think in the panel, they talked about that, the, you know, the website really isn't the end all and be all for them. And they don't have the time to really um, search for things in a bad user experience. So if they're not finding what they need, they're going to make a call sooner rather than later. One of the other things that I'm seeing is that um, when, when engineers do engage that sales channel, uh, manufacturing sales reps are the most common way that they do it. Um, tell me a little bit more about about the the insights around that. So manufacturer sales reps are the most common way engineers are engaging with the sales channel. And that's for the manufacturers, that's for the OEMs, the machine builders, system integrators. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because you kind of years ago, you you had organizations that were talking about the death of the salesperson and this idea that, you know, with the boom in online sales, you know, years ago, Amazon really kind of coming front and center, um, that, that salespeople were going to kind of fade into the background. And that really hasn't been the case on the industrial side. You know, online distributors, I think one of the things that Allison, you and I were talking about was interesting is they talked a little bit more at this event about um, online uh, product distributors. And, and you know, we think that's because uh, more manufacturers Manufacturers are, are considering what their e-commerce strategy is. Um, and we can kind of dovetail that into this part of the conversation, but kind of getting back to, you know, why salespeople are number one there, you know, it's it's because most of the sales process hasn't changed. You know, one of the things that they also shared is that over the last five years, 40% of engineers believe that the sales, uh, the relationship with the sales channel is about the same. I mean, 40% reporting that it's about the same when we know how much has changed in the last five years just with technology alone. Um, so it's pretty shocking to think about that. And, you know, I think one of the things there is just that manufacturers are a little bit slower to adopt uh, newer technologies uh, and their sales organizations are definitely a little bit slower to adopt as well. So um, on the other side of that, they showed that 32% were uh, moderately improved in terms of their relationship with the sales channel, uh, 23% vastly improved, and 3% said they were were uh, moderately or considerably worse. So I wouldn't want to be in that 3% where you've actually, you know, had a negative impact on your relationship with your customers. Uh, but, you know, what they're continuously saying is that in-person meetings, personal emails, personal phone calls um, work across the board. And again, that's whether it's OEMs, machine builders, integrators, you know, Engineers are looking for information. They're doing it themselves through search engines. They're doing it themselves through trade publications, supplier websites. But when they really need an answer, when they really need to engage and, and, and solve a problem, answer a question, they're doing that with what they believe to be the fastest way to accomplish that, the fastest way to get an answer. And that's picking up the phone, calling the manufacturer, calling the distributor, 
guess shooting them an email, just doing some personal email correspondence, um, in-person meetings, you know, all of those things. And I think right now that that's something that we really need to take into consideration. It was a huge takeaway from the event for me because we're in this current pandemic. And, you know, while we believe that there's some short-term impact from this, there's definitely going to be some long-term ramifications that we may not truly realize at this point. And, you know, that personal interaction is, is highly important, you know, so how can we uh, keep that uh, as a, as a, core part of our marketing and sales strategies to, to reach and engage engineers. I think that's just something that um, is going to continue to be top of mind moving forward. That's really interesting, uh, especially as you as you bring up what we're learning from this pandemic and uh, and what we're learning in terms of getting super resourceful about ways to reach out and connect. Obviously, uh, the phone is one of the best because it's it's live voice. Um, but let's talk a little bit about emails. Um, you know, we know that it, they are kind of an, an evergreen, good way to get in touch with people. Uh, what kinds of insights did we see around that? One of the things relating to email that that really stuck with me was actually it was a, a pretty brief moment during the panel discussion. And I don't know if you guys heard this, but um, one of the panelists was answering a question about what are the kinds of emails that you engage with or you're more likely to engage with? And his answer I found I found pretty fascinating. He said, you know, it's the emails that um, that somebody forwards to me. Those are the ones that I'm more likely to to dive a little deeper into and and spend a little more time engaging with. And, you know, and and what he meant by that was he wasn't just he didn't just mean colleagues. I mean, I think the the implication of what he was saying was it could even be a a rep. It could be a person who who's in more of a sales position, but who, in a personal way, uh, says, "Hey, you know, hey, we we put out this content. I think you might find it interesting. Uh, you know, this relates to a discussion that discussion we had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you might want to check this out." And when when you can direct a piece of content to somebody with that with that personal hand of guidance, suddenly it becomes that much more likely for at least in, in this particular panelist's case, for him to engage with the content. So this is anecdotal, and there was also some some really valuable information uh, on a more statistical level from, from some of the research. But that really left an impression on me, and it, and it left me thinking about how, as marketers, we can find opportunities to not just off the cuff, marketers and salespeople, not just off the cuff, uh, on the fly, create those those personal moments, but how can we... Uh, be disciplined about actively and, and systematically and regularly creating those those interaction points where we take pieces of content that we're we're painstakingly creating and and hand deliver them to our our customers and prospects. Yeah, I picked up on that too. That was a um, an insight for me, and also that um, even minor personalization will, you know, increase an open rate or, or, um, have them engage as well. Yeah. Um, when they first started talking about personalization and they said about, you know, just your name or your company name, I kind of rolled my eyes because that's the most base level <laughs> personalization you can, yeah. you know, start with in an email, but the engineer was like, Oh no, I'll take a look usually if it has that, <laughs> um, updated. So I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe that, maybe that's worth the effort. Um, as just, you know, a small, a small change. Also, yeah. um, they said in terms of content, you know, to keep it short, obviously that's always, 
when you're trying to describe, you know, complex products and solutions, that's always a challenge, you know, for copywriters to, to keep it short and compelling um, to the point also that it be data driven. They want to know the stats. They want to know the performance promises, you know, the the percentage, you know, increase in productivity or the percentage decrease in costs that they can expect from that solution pretty clearly shared. And also that um, they want it, the data to be verified by a third party and they, and they are very um, sensitive to being sold to um, and to being um, overpromised. So they are looking for third party credibility whenever they can find it. I think another one of the the things that was pretty interesting is they they reported on this year that I don't remember seeing in the past was the use of personal email versus work email. And, you know, across the board, there were different where areas where, you know, the personal email percentages were relatively low, you know, anywhere from 15 to maybe as high as 25% if they're using a personal email for something like a newsletter or a subscription and still by and large people are using work email. But, um, Going back to the panel, you know, it sounded like their engineers are using some strategies to uh, put some filters between themselves and uh, manufacturers when it comes to uh, email content, because they know when they fill out a form and they download some content that they're going to get remarketed to in a number of different ways. And so, you know, they may be using uh, personal emails um, to allow them to, to do that in a different way and, and have those uh email communications go to different inboxes. So I think to your point, Allison, I mean, being short to the point, being data-driven, um, being able to really clearly communicate a message and, and do it very quickly. Um, I think there was a, even a stat that talked about uh, something like 18% of people, all they do is, is hit the delete. So, I mean, you really have to do that within the subject line and within your uh, short description that, that, that shows up in the inbox there, depending on which form um, email service you're using. But um yeah, you have very little time to make an impact with email uh, in order to get someone to, to open and engage with it. Um, the other thing that was interesting, too, is the time of day. Uh, there were 62% of the audience or engineers said that they um, opened the email between 7 and 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, So just really tailoring when you're sending that content. And you have to think about what time zone they're in, where you're delivering that message, um, and all of those different uh, points. And then even the day of week. Um, 43% of people reported checking email every day. Um, you know, so whether that's just simply, I don't know exactly when the research was done for this. Um, you know, right now, I think during the current pandemic, we're all checking email almost every day. Um, but they also then had conversely 53% say that they don't check email on the weekend. So just being cognizant of when you're sending it and the day you're sending it, uh, and then the context of the email, I think are just all really important things to keep in mind when, when reaching engineers. But those are really just good practices for marketing to anyone. And I think back to the, I just want one note about the personal email. Um, I know that when we do uh, set up lead scoring strategies, um, you know, within, you know, CRMs or marketing automation, um, we usually uh, deduct lead score points for personal emails, but knowing how often, um, you know, engineers and others are, are using them as part of the communication, I'm, I want to think about that the next time we set up those scoring strategies. A lot of what this is is speaking to, um, I think it has to do with the the evolution of our attention spans um, as what I'll call professional consumers. Uh, but there's also, you know, the uh, the understanding that the first group of millennials is about ready to turn 40 years old this year. And 
I'm wondering what that shift in the market actually has to do with it as, as well. Uh, because we, we have, we have different attention spans. We have uh, a different approach uh, and a different sort of openness to a lot of digital technologies uh, without, without getting too, uh, you know, sort of stereotypical uh, what kinds of information were shared about this shift that we're seeing in the marketplace to a younger generation of professionals? I don't know if there was anything specific to that. I know in the past they, they've tried to break the research down based on age groups. And I think they've struggled with that a little bit because engineers by, by definition are, are really tech savvy. You know, they're, they're using platforms like Revit. Um, a lot of the uh, engineers, regardless of age, are just really savvy at finding the information that they need, navigating supplier websites, navigating trade publication websites, um, doing uh, extensive amounts of research. Uh, so one of the things that I think we've seen over the, the years as regards to that is that there really isn't much of a, you know, a separation between different age groups and, and maybe some of their behaviors with uh, primary channels. You know, when it comes to social, you'll see a little bit there. Um, they didn't report too much on that this year as far as social. Social still kind of falls well below um you know, any significant importance on, on the buying journey or, or, or the path to purchase as CFE media reports it. Although, you know, we, we, we've had our own experiences with, with social in the past and the influence that, that it can have. So, um, I don't know, Allison, was there anything else specific to the, uh, sort of generational context that, that you think we missed? No, I don't think so. I don't think there was a strong focus on that. And a lot of the presentations that I, that we reviewed. One thing that always comes up uh, with with conferences like this is uh, is the buyer's journey. What observations do we have regarding the buyer's journey, and and how might it differ for large and small purchases? So as Allison mentioned earlier um, from the research, you know, she I think she shared one of her key takeaways was forty percent of buyers have have reached out or 40% of the engineers have made up their mind before they reach out to, to sales. Uh, again, kind of coming back to this idea that the engineers are, are self-servicing, they're finding the information that they need, they're starting with a Google search. Um, but one of the things that I, I found was really interesting, and it kind of goes back to what we know about complex sales, you know, complex industries is the length of the sales cycle um, and how it, how it certainly differs based on, you know, how much of your you know, share of wallet you're you're giving up for a particular purchase. Um, you know, so as, as CFE Media has found through through their research, is that the um, average length uh, for a large purchase, which is something that they're uh, defining as uh, six figures or higher, um, that that typically uh, is taking place over about eight months. You know, and it's involving. Um, all different types of folks throughout the organization, from business leaders um, to uh, product to engineering uh, to IT uh, procurement and, and many others, uh, and that, that again that that's happening over an eight month period of time. And conversely, when you look at a smaller purchase, something under six figures, that's happening over a relatively shorter period of time, anywhere from you know three to three and a half months for again anything under six figures. So you think about you know what is it that you're selling? What's the cost cost of what you're selling um, and and how quickly might you be able to, to accelerate that that buyer's journey or you know for the manufacturer their their sales cycle um, I know right now during the current pandemic we're, we're hearing from manufacturers and they're talking about you know focusing more on some of the, the smaller products and services that don't necessarily cost as much that might you um, 
you know, fly under the radar and not be a capital expenditure, for instance, but might help to maintain equipment. And so you can think about, you know, that's something that might move through the sales funnel a little bit faster than, than some larger capital expenditures. I also liked it from a uh, results, you know, a marketing program results aspect as well. So as we're launching campaigns, you know, when can you really expect to see uh, a return on that? You know, if the sales cycle is eight months, at least on some of these larger solutions, you know, just to to set those expectations as well from someone who's on the hook for for program (laughs) results across the board. I know Charlie Thornton did a talk about striking the right balance between uh, attention getting creative and the more analytical fact-based information that goes into these kinds of communications. Uh, Cliff and Allison, I'd like to hear your respective thoughts as, as, a, as a creative and as a strategist. Uh, I'd like to hear your respective thoughts on that talk. Yeah, um, I, I, lo- I loved uh, Charlie's talk. And one of the things I really liked about it, I mean, right from the get-go, he's talking about, uh, he's trying to get us to think about people's attention, the the attention that is given to us by our audience as this very, very scarce commodity, something that we're only going to be able to get so much out of out of a, a prospect each day. And, and he's encouraging us really to be as judicious as possible in how we create our content in such a way that it's going to get it's going to maximize the the attention that we can we can glean from these folks as we try to convey our message and and one of his points to as as you said Scott was was this idea of trying to strike a balance in fact the whole talk was called striking striking a balance and it was about he was basically arguing that um you know, especially folks who are newer to business to business marketing communications or folks who are newer to marketing out to a complex audience or a complex industry, um, the temptation can often be to oversimplify in pursuit of an attention grabbing message or an attention grabbing uh, creative conceit. And, you know, and and so so often as creatives were drawn to that i can remember some of my earlier years working as a creative in the b2b space and how i can i i cringe at some of the ideas that i i tried to sell to our teams when i was really really new um in hindsight because it didn't always have the substance that these folks are going to need and and by these folks i mean especially an audience of engineers and and highly educated technical professionals um charlie's point was basically these folks are going to if there's if there's any bombast in your message that you can't back up or even if it sounds like something you're not going to be able to back up like some kind of a big platitude or grandiose positioning statement that just doesn't sound like it's going to be grounded in reality you you might catch someone's attention and then earn nothing more than an eye roll and so he he kind of talked about how it's 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 important to remember that you need to provide substance and then on the other side he was basically saying you know if you if you engineers will tell you they want substance and they want numbers and they want stats but if you if you get too over immersed in this world and you start to just uh just go in lockstep with what these these folks say they want you're going to end up delivering content that is is so factually heavy that it it is entirely unremarkable and ultimately won't earn their attention so he was basically saying it's you know it's a, it's a balancing act and it's I think a balancing act that's unique to business to business and especially unique when you're marketing 
to complex audiences because in, in B2C, this is not a balancing act that you entirely have to maintain. I mean, there's a lot of B2C marketing communications um, that, I mean, think about a Skittles ad uh, or, or a Geico insurance ad where really the goal is just to get the audience's attention and there's there's no direct link between the, the creative motif, uh, the creative story that's being told, and then the story about the product. I mean, they just kind of slap the two things together. It's, it's a little bit more more of a delicate balance when you're dealing in this kind of world. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think, like I, I mentioned earlier, they're uh, sensitive to, you know, over-promising. So we don't exaggerate, you know, if they don't want to see a lot of marketing lingo <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or that kind of word. Um, and not to plug my, the case study that I uh, presented, but um, it sounded like they would respond well to what we used within that campaign, which was data visual- visualization. So clear and compelling, showing the performance statistics, you know, upfront, uh, that value proposition upfront in an easy to understand way. And then that leads you, you know, through more support information that leads you into, you know, how, how you would actually, you know, get one of these solutions. So. Well, that was the thing that interested me so much about this talk is it really did sound like uh, some of the the uh, respectful debates that we have uh, in the agency all the time, usually between uh, folks like me or Cliff and folks like Allison, um, where you know we really are talking about finding finding the proper way to to sort of play each side of that coin because we are marketing to people uh, with you know, with interests and attention spans and that kind of thing. But we're also marketing to people with a lot of very specific challenges with a lot at stake. Um, and they really do need those those hard numbers and facts to back everything up. Um, so that really encapsulates, I think, the challenge of the B2B marketer at a broad scale when you get right down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he broke it down into three different levels. You know, he kind of talked about you know, core info is being level one, which is, you know, the what, why, the so what, um, then level two being supporting information, and then level three being execution information. And, you know, he talked about, and this is one of the challenges we often run into, and we spend a lot of time debating when it comes to something like an ad, for instance. And, you know, you can't get all three levels of information into a single ad, you know, regardless of whether it's a digital or print ad. So you have to think about what are you leading with? What are you going to capture your audience's attention with? Where are you going to drive them to next? Uh, when they get there, where are you going to send them after that? And just think about that journey and how you're delivering that information over you know, a few different interactions versus trying to cram it all uh, into one specific format. And that's certainly a challenge that, that comes up over and over again, regardless of whether you're talking about uh, you know, advertising, case studies, you know, um, social media, web pages, landing pages, anything along those lines. It's, it's always about how do we find the right balance there? Yeah, how to how to really make a succinct and compelling promise, uh, get that audience to take an action, and then keep that promise in a real and meaningful and authentic manner. And I think one of the other big takeaways I had from his talk is something that's really, you know, I think front and center in the whole data privacy debate right now, which is really that you know attention, time, you know, consumers' attention and time is is the currency that that we're all dealing with. You know, as marketers, we're constantly asking our our customers, our, our audience for, for personal information. Uh, 
and you know he described it in a different way as sort of the elusive 600 sort of the value exchange you know how you're how you're delivering value and what the audience is giving you in return for that and and really at the end of the day we're we're asking customers to to stop what they're doing to pay attention to our messages for even just a moment a brief moment in their day and in exchange for what and i think that's the question that we always have to ask ourselves as we're developing a communication is what's the value you know our audience is giving up something whether it's you know private information, name, email address, address, things like that so that we can follow up with them, information about their interests so that we can personalize content. But they're giving up the most valuable resource they have and that, that that's their time, that's their attention. And we have to be very um, deliberate about the value that we're providing back to them. So as Allison mentioned about the the, the case study that, that she presented, you know, being very upfront with the data, the, the, the value proposition, the um, results that you can potentially expect from product XYZ, you know, and doing that all in the right format. Uh, it's all very important when you're really considering what your audience has given up in order to I- interact with your messages. That's a very good. And, uh, and that's probably a good note for us to end on, uh, unless anyone had any, any parting thoughts before we sign off today. Uh, the only other one I have uh, is kind of just future considerations. Marketer- marketers might want to think about when it comes to, um, the role that they play and the role that sales plays. And I know we're going to have some follow-up podcasts here talking about, um, you know, social distancing, the impact that this might have, not just on marketing to engineers, um, but marketing to all different technical audiences. So we won't go too deep in there, but, um, you know, thinking back to in the beginning of the podcast, we talked a lot about, you know, how sales is still, you know, primary channel here for us to, to, to reach customers through, um, you know, you really want to think about long term, you know, how do we take what we know about reaching engineers, um, you know, and, and help sales better engage them, you know, whether it's uh, chatbots, whether it's allowing salespeople to, um, you know, interact on a more personal one-to-one level at scale, um, helping sales better tailor their messaging, you know, especially right now, it's really important that, that, that these messages resonate. And especially as what we heard throughout this podcast on, you know, how important and how difficult it is to, to, to break through to uh, engineers. You know, I think as, as we think about the long-term here, just being a little bit more um, thoughtful of, you know, personalizing those messages, really helping to deliver those at, at, at a one-to-one level, but allowing us to scale them as well. So I know we'll get into that and to, to, we'll get into those topics into in some future podcasts. Absolutely. Which is one of the reasons that we have a podcast and not just a webinar, because it is an ongoing conversation that I think we can have well into the future. Absolutely. Very good. Well, Josh Albert, uh, Allison Fetterman, Cliff Lewis, I want to thank each of you for uh, for taking some time to to share your insights and uh, and reactions to to marketing to engineers. Uh, thanks for taking the time today, and uh, we really appreciate having you as uh, as guests and co-hosts here on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Marketing to Complex Industries is presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. Godfrey is built for technical products, discerning buyers, and intricate buying cycles. For more information, visit godfrey.com.